Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb, and this is the Transporter Room. The convergence of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And we've got some ground to cover. It's going to be a little bit of an abbreviated show this week. Partially because of some things that have happened for me personally. A few weeks ago, a light of my life and my family passed away. My grandmother, Norma Ruth Goodwin. She was a woman of heart, spirit, good humor, a little dash of bluntness. But she was a person who helped raise me. I dare say, if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing right now. She was a big part of my life, and she was the matriarch of my family. So I'm going to be heading back to my hometown, Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm going to pay my respects and say goodbye. Maybe hug my family a little bit. We're going to have a show this week, next week. I'm going to be on a hiatus, but on August 24th, we will be back with both barrels loaded and ready to go. Can you believe college football starts that week? That's right. College football schedule. There is a docket that week. And we're going to talk about that and some of the other issues that are, that are happening. Among the news that's happened recently, last Friday, World Triathlon unveiled their transgender participation policy. And they say it'll go into effect in, quote, 30 days' time. That's around September for scoring at home. The policy states that, quote, to compete in the female category in an elite or age group comp triathlon competition, a transgender athlete. Now, before we go further, further let's a uh, reminder to all these sporting governing bodies, stop saying transgender athletes when you're really talking about transgender women, please. Stop dehumanizing us. Just saying. But policy says a transgender athlete must demonstrate that the concentration of testosterone in the athlete's serum has been less than 2.5 nanomoles per liter continuously for a period of at least 24 months. Also, at least 48 months must have elapsed since the transgender athlete has competed as a male in any sporting competition. Um, personally, I wish they would write that a little bit different. But there's a lot going on there. And we're going to break this down in a second. But one thing I will give World Triathlon, they did pitch a big tent. According to the release, among the groups consulted in the last month by World Triathlon were sports scientists, including Giannis Pizzadalis from the University of Brighton. They also brought in, unfortunately, Emma Houghton and noted South African quotes expert, end of quote, Ross Tucker. Honestly, I don't understand why these governing bodies platform these people. They were both headliners at the recent Icons Conference, or as I like to call it, Transphobapalooza in Las Vegas. They are known anti-trans voices. They have worked with a number of anti-trans organizations. They have 
And at the ICONS conference, basically they and others like them joined hands with groups that have openly said not only do they want to le legislate transgender people out of sports, they would like to legislate transgender people out of society. And these people get a platform. Now, on the other side, there were also some other experts brought in, like Dr. Roger Pelkey um, from, Colorado, from the University of Colorado. It's good to see him in the discourse. He often has a lot of good things to say and comes at it from a different direction. Whether you disagree or not, you respect the fact that he's put thought into it. And there, there's a part of this of this new policy that is an idea that came from him, and it's an idea I do disagree with, and we'll get to that in a second. Also, Dr. Ada Chung was consulted. Dr. Chung is, is at the University of Melbourne. She's an endocrinologist. She's highly regarded, and she has a finger on the pulse of trans people because she actually works with trans people. Medical people who actively work with trans people, and they're finally getting platformed in these discussions. That's a good thing. Another person who was, who was also brought on, IOC rights, human rights expert, Dr. Madeline Pape. Madeline Pape is someone I got to interview last year, and some of her remarks were right here at the transporter room. And also a note to some of the gender criticals who, and certain people like a certain a former Olympic swimmer who's claiming that her transphobia and trans people, because they're getting on her about her transphobia, leave leave her with um, a light wallet and a light bank account. Sarah Davies saying that no, cis, that cisgender women weren't consulting the, this, and cisgender women who are athletes weren't consulted. Uh, they were in this process, and one of those is Dr. Pape. And Dr. Pape is more was ready, willing, and able to talk about what it's really, really about. Don't believe me? Roll the tape. When I use the term normatively bodied, normatively bodied women, I'm talking right. about women who aren't be women whose bodies aren't questioned because they appear to align with normative expectations of what the female body is. So, but that, of course, as you say, is a pretty slippery. Um, idea right and I think that's what's for me is interesting sociologically is how that line actually gets drawn so there are a whole lot of things that people resources and uh, other decisions that people need to make in order to decide whether or not you do fit in this normatively bodied category or not it's not a straightforward process it's very messy and it intersects with ideas about sexuality ideas about race uh, as well and um, the uh, that connection also between race and nation. Um, you know, we have this hugely disproportionate focus on um, women from, some, from sub-Saharan Africa in the case of track and field and women with high testosterone. So that history of colonialism also matters. Also at the table and consulted by World Triathlon were people who actively advocate and lobby for trans people People such as athlete allies, Annie Lieberman was called in, but also, uh, wait for it, World Triathlon did something that a lot of these groups didn't do. They actually talked to trans people who play sports, including trans people who are active in this sport. People like a Chris Moser, who has been to the World Triathlon Championship six times. 
People like Rach McBride. Rach McBride is a pro triathlete and they are non-binary. In addition to voices such as Joanna Harper, note researcher who's also doing a lot, who's been doing years of research on this. She's doing research on it before it was cool. And people like Dr. Veronica Ivey, who has talked about it, wrote about it, lived it, breathed it, and also is a two-time world track cycling champion. So give World Triathlon a little bit of credit. They they want to do a little bit of homework. But I have some misgivings about this policy. And I will fully admit to my bias here. I'm a do athlete. I'm a triathlete. This policy will affect me. For starters, my biggest question is, especially with the 48-month rule that says that that an athlete, the last time they could compete as a male was 48 months, etc. My question is, when does the clock start? When does the clock start in the 24 months? In regards to serum testosterone, when does the clock start? And how will this affect someone who's already competing? For example, how will this affect a Rach McBride who is already competing? How would this affect perhaps that unnamed athlete who could, who very well could be trans, who competed at USA Age Group last weekend? USA Triathlon's age group just passed. The, it was this past weekend. How would this affect that, that particular person going forward? And... We don't have an answer to that question yet because while World Triathlon said the policy is going to affect and made this announcement, we have yet to see the actual text of the policy itself. Because we all know that in any regulation, the devil is in the details. And if you're not careful, those details will bite athletes unexpectedly. And uh, if you don't believe me, here a case in point. A couple weeks ago at USA Cycling's Track Championships, there was a transgender woman, Leah Guinness, who, who finished in a podium and the individual pursuit event. Had a silver medal. Then the next day, she was about to compete in another event, got a tap on the shoulder from an official for USA Cycling who said, um, you're ineligible. We're going to take your silver medal away, and we're kicking you out of the competition. Now, Leah has talked to a couple of outlets length. We've, we've, I've put in a request. I'd love, Leah, if you're listening, love to have you in the transporter room. Hear it from your perspective. You have an open invitation. Please let me know. But that's an example of how the UCI's policies, which went into effect on July 1st, which in many ways were knee-jerk policies. Now they are sim now their policy calls for third calls for somewhere in the area of like the serum testosterone rule is 36 months. And there's no question when and there's no idea when the clock starts. For all intents and purposes, it is nearly a virtual a virtual ban in a lot of ways. There's a lot of wiggle room and there's a lot of ambiguity. And if you don't believe me that there's not, ask Emily Bridges because this rule was built because of her. 
I call it the Emily Bridges rule. Just like I call the the rule from, from FINA, International Water Sports Federation, the Leah Thomas rule, because they were direct responses to hysteria and fear that was unbased and unjustified. And in the case of Leah Guinness, it bit her, and in my mind, it bit her unfairly. Again, when does the clock start? According to Leah Guinness has said in several outlets of stemming from a very frustrated Instagram post by her after this all went down a couple weeks ago, that there was no previous guidance, especially when six weeks before she was told you were legal and all of a sudden you're illegal. See, that's the that's the question. Only again, this is not a newcomer. She's been competing for almost three years, which means and this means for all we know, she's already met, she's exceeded these thresholds already. Why would she be banned under this rule? See, that's another question. How will national governing bodies interpret these? Because there's 206 of those, and they're all going to look at it different. But the story of the week in regards to what we're seeing out here is an interesting story from Ireland. And it's in the case of a Gaelic football player named Julia Valentino. Numbers Valentino plays for a team called Nagel Arecha in the Ladies Gaelic Football Association. Um, translated from Gaelic to English, it's basically the Gay Gales. And they made it to a championship final of the Dublin Junior J Shield Football, football League within the LGFA. Now, they played a team called Nafiana, and they beat them 7 goals, 11 points, 32, to 1 goal, 5 points, 8. So in other words, it was a runaway win. Valentino played decently, didn't score. But all, but during the match, early on during a stoppage in play, the official went over to the sidelines, talked to the Gay Gales manager and said, uh, you got a problem with this one player, that's a man. And the Gales manager said, she's not a man, she's a woman, she's, a tra she's transgender, she's a woman, she's on our team. And by the rules of the LGFA, she's eligible because the LGFA doesn't have a policy. Now, from all intents and purposes, Ms. Valentino has already has already passed muster with internet with the international standards that are currently there. Uh, she also played for a team, for a rugby team, and the Irish Rugby Football Union allows transgender players at the club level if they meet their criteria. And their criteria is basically IOC way to standards, showing your medical records and showing proof that your testosterone levels were below a, a threshold, most likely the 10 nanomol threshold that a lot of club teams use over a 12-month period. From the looks of things and from the information that's out there, she well exceeded that easily. But this is going to another issue that we're going to see with these rules, and we're going to see in the discourse. Because Julia Valentino, by her own definition, she's a goth trans woman dyke 
who's into some who's also into fetish. And also in many ways, while she is a trans woman, she she would some people would say she's queer in her appearance and gender nonconforming. And there's nothing wrong with that. Not no. You need not be high femme to be a trans woman. There are butch trans women, there are queer trans women, there are there are just like there are feminine trans men, there are butch trans men, there are there are people go across the spectrum. And some people are going to look at her. In fact, a number of people have bagged on her because her looks and bagged on her for being unconventional. And that's going to get into the discourse. And to me, that's foul. Now, I sincerely hope that the LGFA takes a good, hard look at the entire situation and not allow themselves to be pressured into decisions made in hysteria and fear and not allow themselves to make a de decision based on the perceptions of some about this particular player or any player. And also to all of you, um, Ms. Valentino is a, is a pretty cool DJ as well. And if you want to hear hear some of the acid, some of the some of the acid techno and some of the techno house that she spins and spins pretty well, I might add. Um, we're gonna we're gonna link we're gonna link some of her work in the liner notes. I'll admit, got me jumping. Oh yeah, uh, Julia. Whenever you want to get beamed up, we got a spot for you. Now. Some shout-outs on the good foot. Uh, we haven't had a Charlie Martin update in a little bit. And let me tell you, Charlie brought Charlie and teammate Jason Gagne Keats brought the goods at Road America, Wisconsin this past weekend. Lamborghini, Super Trofeo, LB Cup class, and all that the Martin Keats team did was first on Saturday, second on Sunday. They were rolling, and I mean rolling. On Saturday, Charlie Martin and qualifying put the car in sixth and then got in the car and pushed him up towards the front. Then Keats did the rest of the work, and they ended up P1. Spray that champagne and get that trophy. And then on Sunday, they fought to a well-earned second place. They now leave Wisconsin within three points of the lead in their class. They're running number two, and they've got two race weekends remaining in the season. The next race weekend coming up, weekend of August 26th through 28th, they will be at Virginia International Raceway. And then, season's end is in November in Portimao, Portugal. And for Charlie Martin and Jason Keith, this could be a championship season. Now, just a note, to all my to all my trans family out there, if you're within proximity of VIR in in three weeks, go buy some tickets. Go, in fact, go for the whole weekend. I mean, watch some good. I mean, there's gonna be some good IMSA IMSA series running across the board. But go, and also a shout out to Wrestling Queerdom on a successful first night of wrestling. In New Hampshire over the weekend, 
Now, if you want the ins and outs of a very special card and a groundbreaking card, check out Brian Bell's LGBT in the Ring episode from August 7th. Check out the most recent one. Like I always say about Brian Bell, if you don't know the wrestling guru for OutSports, if you don't know what they do, you better ask somebody and check out their podcast because they gave the ins and outs of a groundbreaking night in the squared circle that saw an all trans and gender non-conforming card. And we hope they keep doing it. To my family in Seattle, Tacoma, to, to our trans nation people out there, you know there's a big thing coming up from someone who was on a show a few months ago. You know, Brittany Miller and Jerrica Moore from the Puget Sound Pronoun softball team. Well, they're putting together a U Sports clinic. But, and a couple months ago, they called it. Roll the tape. We're, we're trying to find a way to organize a youth skills clinic. And what we'd like to do is basically set up stations with players and coaches from our league being like, okay, this is where you feel the grounder. This is how you throw a, this is how you throw a ball. Um, this is the hitting station. This is, you know, the outfield where you're going to track fly balls. Um, and show kids that we belong in sports, that LGBTQIA plus people belong in sports as much as anyone else, that we can play just as well as anybody else. And uh, any of those kids there that might be, you know, maybe they, maybe their parents are awesome and they're already out and proud, and maybe they're not. And they're, you know, looking to see an example of potential outcomes for them. And then they'll see someone like, myself or Jerrica or our coach Sarah laughing, smiling, having a good time, being good at these sports and think like, okay, maybe, maybe as bad as things sound on the news, maybe happy and thriving queer adult is a potential outcome for me. Well, so. guess what? They're going to have it. The Youth Softball Skills Clinic is a go. It's scheduled for Saturday, August 27th, noon to 4 at North SeaTac Park. Ages 9 to 14, $30 a participant. They'll provide the shirts, the water, the snacks. There are sponsorships available. And if you want to know more, email Brittany at PugetSoundPronouns.org to sign your kid up. If you're in the Seattle Metro, if you're in Vancouver, if you're in Puyallup, if you're in... The Tri-Cities, it doesn't matter. If you're in Eugene or if you're in Portland, drive up, drive across the state, bring your kid there. It's going to be a great time and it's going to help a great cause because proceeds are going to a cause near and dear to my heart, Trans Lifeline. So it'll be a great opportunity, a great afternoon to learn some skills. And also you're going to be learning from a pretty good player in Brittany Miller. And that's the red alert klaxon, which means we got to take a break, pay some bills. But when we come back, we're going to do a rewind from a show we did talking about the issues from the level of the coverage in the press from somebody who recently spoke out again about that particular issue. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us.
Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay Webb. And in the recent days in the conversation.com, there was an excellent article that talks about the issue of trans participation in sports through the lens of the media with a with quite a critical eye, a good discerning critical eye. In fact, I think you need to read this article. We put it in the liner notes. The title of it was Polarizing sensational media coverage of transgender athletes should end. Our research shows a way forward. Now, one thing about the conversation.com is that the articles here are written largely by figures in academia. They are theoreticians, they are professors, they are researchers. They look at the issues analytically. Among the authors were Shannon Scoville, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Maryland. Monica Nelson, a PhD candidate at the University of Wakatoa, New Zealand. Holly Thorpe, who's a professor of sociology of sport and physical culture at that same university. And Dr. Jamie Veal, who's a senior lecturer in psychology and the director of the Transgender Health Research Lab at the University of Wakatoa. Now, that name may be familiar to a few of you in Transporter Room Nation because Dr. Veal was a guest on the show last year. And Veal was brought on to talk about the all of the conjecture and all of the coverage surrounding Leah Hubbard. At this time last year, the Olympics were ending, and Leah Hubbard had just become the first transgender woman to compete in an individual event at the Olympics. But prior to that, at least a good almost two years prior, she was the subject of intense scrutiny by activists and by the media. Even though she did, she only gave one interview in that time. Veal talked about a lot of the talk that was surrounding Hubbard and how it may have been affecting her even as she stayed silent, and also how support, good and bad, affected the issue. And she and her colleagues wrote about this in this article. But in many ways, Veal foreshadowed the article in our interview. And this week, we're going to rewind to that interview. And I want you to listen to it very critically. Listen to it closely and see how, even a year ago, Veal was giving us a glimpse of the future and a glimpse of how the coverage has evolved and in some ways devolved. For you, just as a first just as a New Zealander and a trans New Zealander, what what was the feeling for you to hear that Laurel Hubbard is going to go and will compete in Tokyo? Yeah, look. Uh, I'm I'm really proud. Um, I think it's so important for our community, just like any any group, to have our leaders and our role models. So yeah, um, we're all everybody I've spoken to here is is really proud of Laurel. Um, yeah, and also yeah, there's been four Olympics now where where trans women have been allowed to compete. So yeah, I, I'm glad that it's finally happened, and yeah, I'm glad that it's that it's somebody from New Zealand who who we can all get behind. Well. In your mind, from like a psychology point of view, 
why does it sound like so? Why does it seem so many people sound like William Peters? Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of, I guess, um, fear out there or misinformation, which is causing people um, to, to, to. Or excuse to, me, Winston yeah. Peters. Why are so many people sounding like that guy? Winston Peters, that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, um, we we do unfortunately have our, uh, yeah. I guess our political leaders who, who might want to try and try and um, make some political gains from the, the yeah, unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> there's some fear and misinformation out there. And unfortunately, that's leading to some really hurtful and hateful comments. So, yeah, and I, I think, unfortunately, there's a bit, bit of stuff happening in the media about this. Particularly, I've noticed some of the, the British media dead naming her, which, which I think is just, just really... Just, just really nasty, and and there's a lot of dehumanising stuff um, in the in the media as well, which which has just led to um, yeah led to led to more of the the negative perceptions, unfortunately. The way that this is being framed is hurtful, and I can see it. Being trans myself, it it's very ang it, it induces a lot of anger, especially like you see the dead naming of her when people are treating her as this monster. But in a real sense, based on based on the data, you've done surveys on this, and your most yeah. recent one was involved 1,100 trans people within your country. Yeah. What are the for people that may not get it? What are we talking about as far as the effects of what we might see in the vitriol we're going to see over this next month or so? Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, we know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will know um, about the, the, the massively high levels of stigma and discrimination that transgender people face in, in our societies. I'm sure you have it there um, in Turtle Island on, in the USA, and, and we have it here in Aotearoa, New Zealand as well. So, in, and so we had, um, unfortunately, here in, in, in New Zealand and, and in many other places, we didn't have any, we, we, were, we weren't counted in any of our national health surveys. So we did um, Counting Ourselves, which was the survey that you mentioned, the Aotearoa New Zealand Transgender Health Survey. Um, yeah, we found, um, you know, while, while there was 17% in the general population have been faced discrimination, we had 44% um, in, in trans people, and this is in the last year. Um, we have 11%, so that's one in nine have been de denied a home or apartment because they're trans or non-binary. And then when you're thinking about um, specifically with sports, 58% of our, of our participants had avoided the gym because of the fear of how they might be treated for being trans or non-binary. 50% had avoided sports teams because of fear of how they might be treated. Um, yeah, so we only had 14% um, of um, accounting ourselves participants. Um, actually participated in, actively participated in sports competitions or events. And we are, we're a sports-loving nation here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So our 14% was much lower than the 26% in the general population. So some uh, real inequities and extra barriers for, for, um, for sport participation. And, you know, all the stuff about the, the fairness, this quote-unquote fairness issue, you know, I think we should actually be talking about you know, these additional barriers that trans people face in sports, that's the fairness issue, which I would prefer, prefer us to be focusing on. How important was it that Jacinta Ardern, probably the most 
popular in New Zealand or in the world right now, and possibly the most popular head of state in the world right now, got out front and said, that's the case for Laurel, but also the team in New Zealand. They have followed the rules. The alternative is to have someone who's followed the rules but then is denied the ability to participate. Ultimately, I leave it to those bodies, and that's the decision they've made, and it's in keeping with the standard that's been set globally. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. Um, yeah, it just shows that, that the level of support for her goes right to the top here. Yeah, and, and yeah, look, she's been a real... Um, she has been an advocate for, for trans rights, seeing that support right from the top. I think that actually is is reflecting a, what I mean, what I'm hearing from a lot of people in society that you know we actually, are, yeah, we, we actually really get behind our own. Um, Laurel's faced some some really massive um, so, some massive um, I guess barriers, like really to to face against the odds, so against these. IOC guidelines and this career-threatening injury that she's had. Um, so I think a lot of people here in New Zealand, not just the Prime Minister, are just saying, "Look, she just deserves. She's done. She's done. The, um, she's done what was required of her. She just needs to, like every other Olympic competitor, be able to just concentrate on her sport." You've probably seen the mean tweets. I've seen quite a bit of them about how it would be an embarrassment if she won a medal. It be a, or or what's worse, the people who willfully get the pro who willfully get the pronouns wrong, who who call her male who call her male male biological male. I, I actually want to touch on that. Yeah. What is the psychology behind these terms such as biological male? What well, yeah. what is that? What's really at play there when someone uses that term? Yeah. So look, what I what I think is it actually is is really these people showing their true colours. So often you'll see this couched in this, you know, oh, we're supposedly um, protecting women, and when they say women, they read, you know, just cis women. They're, they're obviously excluding trans women from their definition of woman. And look, when they're then they're blatantly misgendering like that, you know, it, it's just showing that actually it's coming out that what this is really about is not about. Um, supposedly protecting women, but you know this is about not seeing Laurel for who she is, um, and not seeing Laurel as a, as as the woman that she is, um, and so yeah, really this this comes down to this prejudice that that not seeing trans women as equal citizens and and being able to be treated as human beings in the same way that that cisgender women are. You got your PhD nine years ago. Yeah, and you. What was what was the climb to get there like? Well, I mean, you're dealing with you're getting a PhD, but at the same time, you're dealing with this m massive life change that you go through to become. Oh, sure, you talking about transition? Yeah, that's that's what I'm getting. That's what I'm getting at here. Well, yeah, I say, so how'd you I get there? How did you get? How did you get there? How were you able to push through it? Because, yeah. You may have the even with the privilege and the access, and that's one thing people harp on with Laurel Hubbard a lot is that Laurel Hubbard's family comes from means. They come from means. They're like a kind of a big. The Hubbards are like a big wheel in the country. This kid's got had a lot of privilege. Yeah. I think a lot of people. First off, what's your thoughts when people hit hit you with that? The reality is that that Laurel is is a trailblazer. You know, somebody has to be the first. 
trans women to compete. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, whoever that was going to be, yeah, the, there might be some privilege, but the reality is that she's the first, so, so that she is being a trailblazer there. You know, even the most conservative estimates of the number of people in the population who are trans. Um, and you think about the number of athletes that we have at the Olympics. So I just checked it out. We have, we're going to have 11,000 athletes at the, at the Tokyo Olympics. Even with the most conservative estimates of transgender people, number of transgender people, you'd expect at least tens, you know, even up to 100 trans people there if there was equality for trans people. What was your story? How did you get here? Being trans in Aotearoa, New Zealand, I, I, yeah, I, um, I am growing up in the, yeah, the 80s and uh, 90s here, I guess I, we didn't really... You know, I, I didn't really have any words for it until the 90s when, you know, we started to get the internet and um, I, I'm sure a lot of other trans trans people of my, I guess, vintage will, will have similar stories that, you know, that was just the mind-blowing time where, um, you know, we could we could actually connect with one another across across the world and um, on this great new thing called the internet. Um, I, I don't know, you, you it, was, it was probably much before your time there, Carly, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're. Oh, we're guessing ages, aren't we? <laughs> I have a feeling we're about in the same place. <laughs> oh, I we're. See. I think in many ways we're at about in the same. We're about in the same place because I mean, my first time I really was getting information was in the 1990s. Took yeah. a little bit longer for me to get there, but yeah, I mean, but talk about that. How important was that? Was that information boom for your own development? in the 90s because for many of us the 1990s and the and the internet was the first time that we actually saw information that wasn't sensationalized wasn't yeah. overly sexualized but very factual yeah absolutely it, it was so important i think for me as well just being able to reach out and you know i was in a yeah in a fairly conservative city in, in new zealand you know I guess a long way away from a lot of other people, and I'm sure a lot of other of your other listeners. Yeah, and even before that, I remember I would I would you know sneak, well not necessarily sneak, but go to the library and go to that that section in the library where there's the the, the trans section, I guess, and um, you know, I wouldn't let anybody else know that I'd been been getting out these books. And you know some of those books were were were, were okay, and some of them, like you say, were were a little bit sensationalized. Um, but yeah, the internet just gave that chance to connect with other folks, and I think that was super important. Uh, and eventually, really helped me to be able to to come out um, and and affirm my gender um, and start hormones and, and and go down that pathway. Um, yeah, there were there were some difficulties along the way. Back in those days, you had to, um, I guess, in the, we're talking about the late '90s now, you, and and as as you often still do. Um, you know, they send you to a psychologist, and, and the, the first one I got, unfortunately, was somebody who, um, yeah, was came from a, a, I guess, a perspective that was um, very pathologizing and, and very much like, um, you know, like um, you don't fit the, you know, fit the, the supposed mold of um, of being trans, like that that old school way of, you know, you having to be hyper feminine. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, that, that set me back for a while and, and, and I guess that looking back that those kind of experiences did, um, push me eventually towards working with, with folks like WPATH, 
um, you know, there's still a lot of work to do, but helping to remove some of those barriers and a lot of that pathologization, which, um, which unfortunately has, has persisted in, in, in our healthcare um, and, and, and continues to persist to, through to today. Um, yeah, so yeah, I had some, some, some setbacks there and um, yeah, I perhaps, you know, wasn't always as confident as perhaps I could have been, but you know, I got there and um, I, I'm really happy that I've, I've had a really supportive family. Uh, I've had um, some, some wonderful friends that I've met along the way. And yeah, like I mentioned before, some wonderful work colleagues and collaborators who, who I have now who, who help me with, with doing, doing the work that I do. Yeah, it really is a team effort. Now, as far as that pathologization, I mean, cause having gone through some of the process in the past, working through WPATH now, how much of that has changed and what still needs to? Yeah, yeah, look... I think it's it's changing quickly. I think there's going to be new, uh, there are new standards of care, I guess, being updated, and there's some really good people involved in that, creating um, greater access, fewer barriers, but, um, you know, maybe maybe we're, we're not quite there yet. At least, um, you know, WPATH as, as an organisation perhaps, perhaps isn't quite there. Um, the pathologization, I think that's, that's been a massive shift, not just in the, the, I guess, the healthcare settings, but, you know, also just in people's mindsets and just seeing trans people, uh, non-binary people, how we actually see ourselves um, and, and not internalizing that, that, those negative ideas about ourselves, it's really negative stories that are coming out about trans people, unfortunately. And for example, with Laurel Hubbard, unfortunately, there still is a lot of that negative transphobia stuff in there. And so the more that we can be pushing towards, pushing away from the, the pathologizing um, view of just seeing trans as being gender dysphoria. So we're moving there with, with trans people, we're a bit behind, um, but yeah, I, I think movement backlash is a thing um, which we're seeing right now so while there is a lot of progress there's, there's always going to be the backlash so it's expected to some extent although obviously disappointing especially with some of the areas where it's coming from reading some of the past wpath guidelines i'm talking about the pat the distant distant past not not the recent but i look back and i would think some say psychologists would not let me through the gate because I was an athlete. In the past, I would be looked at as, no, you're not really trans because you're not, I love sports. Sports are, sports to me is like oxygen. Yeah. How much can sport play a role? There are some people in the trans community who say that Laurel going to the Olympics is a bad idea. It's going to set us back. Look, I've just come back to it's it's a massive deal for for like why are trans people any different from anybody else? We should have the right to be able to exist in all parts of society. Yeah, it's not going to be for everybody, but you know, for the folks, the wonderful folks like you, and you know, it's been a big part of my life too. Actually, I I've played a lot of you know not I'm, I'm no one here is I've never made it to any elite levels, but. Um, yeah, I've, I've played a lot of, um, you probably don't know the sport cricket, but um, I've also played a lot of, um, when I lived in Canada, played a lot of softball. Um, yeah, sport is massive um, for so many people, so many queer communities. It's a great way to connect, um, connect with other folks um, and, and be part of something bigger. And, 
Yeah, sadly, like some of the statistics I, I said at the beginning, you know, these, these added barriers that trans people face, it's, it's just part of the problem which we need to be undoing. So, so what was it like playing both sports? And playing both sports authentically. Yeah, what was yeah. that feeling like for you? Yeah, it's great. Um, well, I think on the one hand, it's, I think it's just like everybody else who loves sports, right? It's, you know, you enjoy the sport. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, when I was, I guess, earlier on after I'd, I, I perhaps been, uh, when it was closer to when I transitioned, um, it, it was, you know, it was actually a, a really big deal then. Um, nowadays, I guess it's perhaps more just like, um, you know, more just like everybody else. But, you know, for, for me earlier on, it was massive. The first time I told a starting line knowing that this is, I'm not representing the shell of what I was, I'm representing me now. Yeah. It, it, I was just so excited and so happy. And at the same time, there were tears flowing just before, just before the horn went off for this first race I did. So there, hey, I'm with you. There's a lot of emotion there. But one thing for you, what was the moment when you said, I, had to, I have to be me, no matter what? When I was young, like perhaps 14 or so, um, you know, figuring all these things out, as, as often we are when we're going through those ages. Um, yeah, I decided to just, you know, sit down with myself and think, you know, what's, what's going on here? Who, you know, um, yeah, who are you? Like, how, how can you fully be yourself? Um, yeah, and then I just decided there, and I, I knew it was going to happen, but I knew it would take some time because, yeah, back in those days, and um, it, it was, it was, it was, this was the 90s we're talking about, it was tough um, to, for, for a teenager, and, and I talked to you about some of my difficult experience, that was difficult experiences with a psychologist, that was towards my later teens. Um, yeah, it took some time, um, but I got there in the end, and, you know, and, and some 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 ways, you know, there was some parts of the journey. You know, sometimes you've got to enjoy the enjoy the ride. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not happy that there were those barriers there. And uh, would I want to put that on anybody else? No, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm quite lucky that, um, yeah, I've been able to be fairly sheltered and, and be able to um, be able to have the, the freedom to be able to 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 get there in the end. A couple more things around this out, the important stuff, because now we're coming up fast on opening ceremonies. Yeah. It's going to intensify. What are the myths that you're seeing in the reporting, and what are the things that especially sports reporters need to know about this story to avoid getting caught in the myths and getting caught in what I call the monster movie about this yeah. whole thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it sounds like you have some great points on, on all of this. So, yeah, look, I, I can give mine. Um, I've heard different perspectives from different people. So, yeah, I think it's good to hear different ones. I think there's this perhaps myth out there that, you know, trans women are just going to be totally dominating women's sport, that, that fear or fairness. Yeah, look, that's, that's, you know, people have been put, putting this fear out there since like the, at least the 80s when, when we've had um, Renee Richards um, competing in tennis. Um, there's there's going to be trans women are just going to take over. And look, the reality is, I, 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 like I said with this 
numbers before. How, there's 11,000 athletes at the Olympics. How many are trans? You know, there's been four or five, four Olympics at least so far. Um, let's put it in perspective. Like, um, I think media needs to make sure that this perspective is actually put there because somebody who's new to this topic who doesn't know anything will be like, oh my God, there's these new things coming in which are allowing trans people, trans women to compete um, as women, as who they are. And that's meaning that, that, that all of a sudden there's that fear, you know, there's the, it goes to that, that place of, you know, the, fear, the supposed fairness, fairness issues. So I think our media has an important role to play with making sure they provide the proper context um, in what they're doing. So I think that's massive. Um, yeah, and I think some of the ways that, that uh, it's being framed in terms of like, yeah, do a trans women biologically, um, you know, going into the biological arguments, it's, that's just um, the, the, wrong, the wrong way of even going about it because, you know, if it was the idea of say, um, would you say uh, women who are over six feet tall should, um, um, should not be able to compete because um, they may have an unfair advantage. No, nobody ever says that. What I'm saying is, you know, that's the wrong question, but it's about the human rights. It's about making sure that um, everybody has, um, should be counted. Trans women should be counted as women and have the chance to compete as equal citizens, just like anybody else. What you say about context is very important because 11,000 athletes will be in Tokyo, three will be trans. One's an alternate, one's in a team sport, one will be in an individual sport. And as far I am with you on that whole idea about size, because there are black ferns who are six foot and like 80 plus kilos who are, that's putting a good, that's putting a good amount of weight on me and yeah. my, and my relatively light around, oh, like 55, 60 kilos here. Are we serious here about this, about this demonization? Now, yeah, women come in all shapes and sizes. And actually some of the, the black, well, some of the, some of our great leading cis women rugby players have actually come out and said the same thing here in New Zealand and they've been great allies. Yeah, I also know one commentator, Alice Soper, who when they when they were talking about the whole thing with World Rugby last year, the first words out of her mouth was... I think it's complete nonsense. Um, we have so much... It, it's based on an underlying assumption that all cis women are built in the same way, which you only need to go down to your local club game in the weekend to figure out that that is patently false. Uh, we have a whole range of body types, and that's the beautiful part of our game is that all body types can make it onto the field and be useful. So, you know, whether that's when I started, I was a tiny little thing um, and was on the field with people that were twice my size, and there wasn't much concern about player welfare there, so this feels like a bit of scapegoating if you ask me. Yeah. And I think you can look at the same thing as far as Laurel Hubbard. Now, as far as Hubbard, what message would you want to give her as she's training and preparing to head into this maelstrom? And, yeah. and we're talking about a person who's been very private, won't give yeah. interviews, won't put her, has probably put herself in the public eye once in the last four years or so. What message would you give her as far as dealing with what's coming? I, I know that she's getting a lot of support from, from the Olympic team. And look, I know she won't be wanting to let the media distract her. So, and so 
so she can just focus on on her weightlifting. But yeah, it might be quite difficult for her to block it out. But I, I just think I, I just would want her to know that, um, yeah, um, we're so everybody I talk to and and so many of us we, we're just all so proud of her for being such a trailblazer. Um, so yeah, it's it's going to be hard for anyone to anybody to compete at the elite level. Um, and yeah, someone someone has to be the first. And and yes, I know that there are there are some others there, but look. Um, yeah, I, I just want to say look, I'm, I'm just so proud of her and I'm just so proud that, that we have these um, great role models out there for, for like I said before, like a, a young trans girls and, and young women, um, you know, who may be wanting to, to, to be thinking about whether there is actually a future for them in elite sport. Last question here. Monday, August 2nd. Laurel Hubbard steps onto the podium, does her lifts, does great lifts, podiums, maybe even as much as a long shot it may be, given the, given the competition, a gold medal or any medal. What do you think that would mean for the trans community in New Zealand to see her competing and perhaps even getting on a podium. What would that what do you think that moment would mean for transgender New Zealanders? And also from a personal standpoint, how do you think you'll feel when you see it when you're looking on TVNZ and you see her approach that platform to take her shot? Yeah, look, I'll be watching, I'll be cheering her on and I'll be really proud and, and hoping that she wins gold. Um, and I, like I was doing for, we have the Commonwealth Games here, which I guess is a bit of an antiquated colonial term where a lot of the, the, um, the we have Britain and a lot of the, the former British colonies have our own games too. And yeah, we, we were doing that. We were doing that too. So yeah, we'll be cheering her on. I'll be so proud of her. But you know, I will be also oh, wary of, of whether there are what that means in terms of more hurtful and hateful comments and um, that, 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 that this just might energize um, some of these opponents um, further. But look, we can't let this stop, stop her. We know that she's done everything that she needs to do to compete against the odds, against the, the IOC guidelines and, and her injury. So yeah, look, let, we, we need to celebrate her for, for her for what she's doing and we just need to keep on fighting for that. And, and all of us, you know, uh, all of our trans communities, all of our allies, all of our great athletes like yourself, just um, <laughs> keeping on the, um, keeping on the, and the media like yourself too, just mm -hmm. be on the, um, keeping on the, the progress that we're making. Look, we are getting there. Sometimes it can feel a little bit uh, like there is, um, yeah, like, like there is some, backlash and, and it can feel like one step forward, two steps back sometimes. But, you know, you only have to look, look back at um, the past to see how far we've come. And, I, and I'm, I'm really positive for, for the future. For, for more of our athletes and for, like I said, the, the trans girls and young women coming through and, and the next generation, I really hope there'll, there'll be many more than three in the, the next Olympics because, you know, you think of the number of people who are trans 
if there are 11,000 athletes, there's got to be more than three who are trans. So, yeah, um, we'll get, yeah, we'll get there into, into a, to a more positive future with, with fewer barriers and greater trans acceptance and celebrations of, of, of ourselves. Yeah. And that's the transporter room this week. But before I go, I want to send a, send a thank you to my colleagues at Outsports who have reached out. Well, it's been a very difficult time. Loss in my family, as I mentioned at the top of the at the top of the podcast. And so many people in Transporter Room Nation and so many people close to me who've reached out. Reached out with their support and reached out with their love. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. And again, thank you. Thanks to all of you in Transporter Room Nation. And just a little reminder, if there's something you want to see or someone you want to see or something you want to say about what I'm doing here, please leave a message on our Twitter page, leave a message on our Facebook page, leave a message on our Instagram presence, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Because everything I do at the Transporter Room, I do it for all of you, the people who support us, and I am grateful for that support. As I said at the top of the show, We're going to be on hiatus for the next week, but we're going to be back like gangbusters, ready to see what's out there on August 24th. That's the transporter room for this week. Live long and prosper, and steady as she goes. I'll see you in two weeks.